0: Amen. You can be seated. So glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for coming uh, to be a part of, of Outward Church and, uh, and what God is doing here. I uh, wanted to uh, just let you know real quick, um, I was just on a, uh, a, uh, a trip to, to Dallas. I just got back and uh, I was in, in Dallas for a conference that was essentially uh, around church planting and church planting is the idea of starting new churches And so we are all about that here at Outward Church. We want to start new churches on a regular basis. We want to be a church that is a church planting church. And so uh, what we're uh, about is we're about giving money to that. We're about uh, serving through that. We want to see men raise up who are going to be church planners and uh, the rest of the church gather around them and serve alongside of them and and to help them become the people that they need to be. We want to send people. We want to send dollars out. And so those are some things that we're already doing um, in the context of our church, and we want to continue to do that. But I I was there with, I, I would estimate there was... Oh, maybe, maybe close to 1,000, something like that, people that were there. In Acts 29, we're part of a network called Acts 29 Network. Um, there are over 600 churches worldwide. Um, we recently have uh, a church planter in Pakistan um, that has asked if he could become a part of our network. And um, we, we don't know exactly how that took place. But um, we have a church planter in Pakistan, which is awesome. And um, let me just tell you this. In light of what what happened um, just recently in Paris, uh, we believe that what our world needs is Jesus Christ. We believe that our world needs Jesus Christ because he brings healing, he brings restoration, he brings peace between man and man. And so the greatest thing that we can offer our world, more than military strength, although that may be required, more than anything else, is that our world needs Jesus Christ. And so we want to be people who are all about uh, producing churches throughout our world through the power of God's Spirit. That's what we want to be about. So this morning, we're going to be in James chapter 1, so you can turn there um, with me. And we're going to be talking about um, what's going on there. And one thing I did um, forget to do in my original prayer here is to, just to pray for the people of Paris this morning. I mean, it's, it's a heavy week. And so let me just uh, go to our Father in prayer uh, this morning and, and lift them up. Lord Jesus, we just want to ask for your comfort and your peace uh, to the, the families that have lost loved ones uh, in Paris. And Lord, really, throughout all of the world, there are so many people who are hurting. There's so many people who do not understand. There's so many people who are confused about why this took place from people who seemingly are very devout about their God. And so uh, in some ways we ask the question, God, why is this happening? In other ways we want to rest in you and we want to just say, God, you know all things and one day you are going to wipe away every tear and you are going to make all things new. And so Lord, our hope, our great hope is in you and what you're going to do uh, in this world. So, Lord, we ask you for this. We pray that you would do uh, amazing things. And, Lord, I pray that we would be people of healing, that when it comes to the way that we talk about this uh, terrorist attack in, in Paris, that, Lord, that we'd be loving uh, towards, uh, towards all people, including those that believe differently than us. Lord, that we'd leave room for folks who um, uh, just have a different religion, uh, but, Lord, that we, w- we would love them And offer the hope of of Jesus. Um, Lord, I pray that we would uh, continually be showing that grace that you showed towards us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, So this morning we're talking about James uh, chapter 1 still. And what we have been saying from the very beginning is don't follow your heart. There's so much stuff from our culture that says follow your heart. Uh, It will lead you uh, to your own self be true. Uh, Just just go wherever you feel led to go. We see this in Christian culture as well, as people uh, essentially believe that somehow that they are best led by the way that they feel. And our assertion and the assertion of the Scriptures is that uh, on a primal level, our desires are oftentimes rooted in our own hearts. And within the context of our hearts, We have a spirit, a personal spirit, not the Holy Spirit in that sense, that's not what I'm talking about right now, but we have a spirit that's leading us into life, and that's leading us into lots of different things, and we get these things confused. We get the Holy Spirit mixed up with our personal spirit. And we, we believe that we just need to lead ourselves, we need to follow our heart, and we assume that that is the Spirit of God. Or we just say this, maybe we're not a Christian, maybe we're not somebody who really buys into that ideology, and so we just say, you know, whatever, wherever my, my desires lead me is a good place. Wherever my desires are leading me is, a, is going to be a really good place. But the truth is that many of us don't really believe that all the time. I've been uh, reading uh, from one particular author named uh, David Brooks uh, recently. I think I mentioned him last week, perhaps. I'm really into a book called uh, The Road to Character. And uh, what he says in this book and through some other thing, a TED Talk that he did and so forth is he, he talks a lot about there's two different types of virtues in our world. There's two uh, different uh, ways to live, essentially. And these virtues are or good things are based in two aspects of life. Uh, there's the resume virtues, which is what you're taught in school. And from the very beginning, when you get into school, you're being taught about how to have a, a better job or how to be somebody who uh, is very successful. And we're going after that. Or there's these eulogy virtues, which is really what we want to be uh, described as when we die. So if I were to say to you, what do you want to be remembered for? What, what do you want to be uh, remembered for at your funeral. When you're on your deathbed, what, what do you want to have been said about you? And oftentimes these things are in great conflict because there's these resume virtues, that, things that make us look successful in any type of uh, aspect of life, whether it's in your work or whether it's in your home, or whether it's in in uh, in, in, in the area of sex or relationships or um, a, a claim, whatever it is, there's this idea of these resume virtues. But it's in great contrast to what we really want to be said about us when we die. Like nobody wants at their funeral to to hear. I guess you're not going to hear it, um, but uh, nobody wants to have said at their funeral that, man, this guy was so good at business. He sacrificed everything. I mean, he sacrificed his wife, and he sacrificed his kids, and he sacrificed his character. Man, wasn't he a great guy? Nobody wants to hear that. Most people want to say this. Like, he was a good person. He really tried to help a lot of people. He really tried to do all of these things. Or she was a, uh, was a really great mother, or, or what have you. And so we have these two great contrasts in our life between what we're taught in school, what we're taught in daily life, what the TV and Netflix and, what are, and music teaches us. But then there's this other side, which is what we really want. And so we have this divide in our life. There's these two areas of life. And so how do we get to this place where we say, I really want to value the things that I really want to be remembered as. How do I get to that point? But we're so often led by so many different things. Think about the, the great theologian, Miley Cyrus. Um, she has a fantastic song, very well written, um, called uh, We Can't Stop. Uh, you, you've probably heard it before. And we can't stop. We won't stop. Yeah. Um, anyway, she says, and we can't stop. Whoa, oh. And we won't stop. Whoa, oh. We run things. Things don't run we. I I, I believe that's incorrect English, but we're not going to falter with that, right? Uh, Don't take nothing from nobody. Yeah, yeah. It's our party. We can do what we want. It's our party. We can say what we want. It's our party. We can love who we want. We can kiss who we want. We can see who we want. To my homegirls here with uh, the uh, large behinds. Um, That was edited. I I, I don't know. Uh, shaking it like we're at a, uh, a club. Remember, and listen to, listen to Miley's deep theological thoughts. Remember this. As you're going through all of these things, you can do whatever you want. You can love whoever you want. You can say whatever you want. You can kiss whoever you want, but it's only ju- God who can judge us. Remember, only God can judge us. Those two thoughts seem very antithetical don't they they're just they're separated from one another He's, she says uh forget the haters because somebody loves you that's comforting there's acceptance in that god accepts you somebody loves you and everyone in line in the bathroom trying to get a line in the bathroom a reference to cocaine she goes on my purpose here this morning isn't to denigrate miley cyrus because she's very proud of her song. Um, she's using the gifts that God has given her to essentially say everything that's antithetical to who God is. And yet she somehow claims that God is the only one who can judge us. But if God is the only one who can judge us, why are we oftentimes judging God? We're oftentimes the ones who are, who are judging God uh, based on our life. We're, we're saying, God, why would, you, why would you allow this to happen? We, we put him on trial, essentially, we say god you, you you shouldn't have allowed this to happen or uh, or we have this 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 God who's just kind of nice and and soft uh, he's like your grandmother when you've gone out and, and perhaps you know uh, killed somebody and you you, uh, you 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 tell your grandmother and your your grandmother is sweet oh it's okay honey it's it's okay sweetie it's it's fine. we oftentimes view God in a way that is inconsistent with what who he actually is he's also inconsistent with even with what Miley Cyrus says and yet in the very same song she's saying I can do whatever I want we can go wherever we want we can see whoever we want there are no rules we are rules unto ourselves but listen to this at the end of your life you will lie on your deathbed however you die your life will flash before your eyes and you will say, how did I live this life? How will I live this life? And you will be held to a standard. Whether you believe it or not, you will be held to a standard that is not Miley Cyrus' song or the resume virtues. There will be another standard. And so here, here's the question though. Like how do we get to a point where we're able to say, okay, uh, I wanna be about the things that are really going to matter the things that are going to honor God, the things that are going to honor my wife or my husband, the things that are going to honor my kids, the things that are going to honor my, my employer. How do we get to that point where you say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be about these things, but I'm going to be about these things. And how do we make a determination? Well, I think James does a great job here of helping us understand something about life. How do we avoid our desires? How do we get to a point where we're able to say, I'm going to make some different choices. I want to be more about the eulogy virtues than I am about the resume virtues. And so this is what James says, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now what James is is talking about here, He's essentially saying, in the context of talking about troubles or difficulties, trials, he says, in the context of that, the end result is when you don't remain steadfast under the test that comes inevitably with every trial. Everything in your life is a trial. Everything is an opportunity for temptation, whether you're doing really well or whether you're doing very poorly whether uh, you have the marriage that you want or whether you don't have the marriage that you want. Everything comes with a temptation. There's always a temptation there. And James says the end result is a fatal attraction. It's a fatal attraction that's essentially going to kill you. And I want you to hear me clearly on this. I want you to hear me clearly on this. When somebody claims to be a Christian, when you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you've understood that that what you've done is completely forgiven, that what you will do is completely forgiven when we're talking about sin, when you understand the gospel and yet you never follow through with growing in Christ and becoming more like Christ, it's questionable as to whether that's true of you, as to whether you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ. If you refuse to grow, if you refuse to lay aside your desires, if you refuse to say, I want to be more about what God wants me to be about, if you refuse to even look at that, there's a a question there. And the question is, do you really know who God is? Have you really received him by faith? I was talking to a good friend of mine just last night. Uh, We had worked together a number of years ago, and him and I... Uh, you know, spent time together here and there, and I would try to share the gospel with him. And I remember through one conversation, um, we, were, we were talking about the gospel, and he said, yeah, when I got married, I believe he said this, uh, when, when uh, he said, yeah, when I got married, uh, the, the pastor told me about the gospel, and I received it at, at that time. That's what I remember from this conversation. But then I'm sitting there talking with him, and what he says to me is he says, but it never really took I never really understood it until one day he's driving home from work, sees a guy on the side of the road and, you know, sees that he has a flat tire. And so he pulls over, stops and says, hey, do you need a ride? He says, yeah. So the guy gets in the car with him. They, he's taking him to his office. And this guy says, are you a Christian? And he says, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he says, um, well, where do you go to church? He says, well, I don't really go to church. And the guy says back to him, he says, how do you worship God? how are you a worshiper of God then? And he says, well, I don't really worship him, but I I call myself a Christian. And all of a sudden, he was brought to a realization through that conversation, and and I think some other conversations, that he really wasn't living in line with what he said he was. He hadn't really been about the things of God. He hadn't really been somebody who cared about the things of God. He He wasn't worried about growing in godliness, and in reality, he wasn't really a Christian at that point. In fact, that's what he told me last night. He said, that, that didn't, I, I, I wasn't a Christian then. All of a sudden he came home and he tells his wife, like, I think God made the trees. Like I think there's a God. There's, like, there's a real God and he's a creator. And so all of us have to be confronted with something, which is like, did you make a serious profession of faith or is it something that just looks good on a resume? Did you make a serious profession of faith If you call yourself a Christian, did you make a serious profession of faith? Or are you somebody who's just kind of playing around with this thing called Christianity? And James is really getting at that. When he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. A Christian is somebody who remains, keeps his character or her character when they come under trial. A a Christian is somebody who remains steadfast. And it doesn't mean that you don't have instances where you say, ah, oh, I gave in. It doesn't mean that there aren't problems like that. But what it does mean is this, is that on the whole, my life is geared towards being somebody who is steadfast, who is a man or a woman of character, who says that I not only believe this, but I. it plays out in my life. It's not just something that I know it's not just something that I feel, but it's something that I'm acting on. It's head, heart, and hands. It's somebody who's fully engulfed in the life of Jesus Christ, knows and loves him, and is walking with him. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will res- receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, if you reverse if you reverse that, that verse 12 there, It says this, for those who love him, God has promised the crown of life if we stand up under the trial. Now, I want to be careful with this. I want to be careful with this because salvation doesn't come as a result of doing what's right. But what this says right here is this, is that People who love God. People who want God in their life. People who are saying, I, 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 I want to grow in Him. I want to be like Him. I want my, my desires and my affections and the things in my life to be in line with who God is. People that love Him will stand up under the trial. People that love him are, are, are not going to be people who say, forget you, God, in the midst of this. How dare you? How could you? They're going to be people who say, I love him, and I want to walk with him, even through the difficulty, even through the difficulty. I was sitting with a church planter friend of mine. The guy has had massive amounts of suffering in his life. I cannot believe the level of difficulty that's happened in his life uh, throughout his years. He has two kids that have a spina bifida, which, which very much disables them. They're unable uh, to walk. Th- things aren't working quite rightly. They've, they've gone through this massive ordeal with that, multiple surgeries. He told me how many surgeries he's going to have in the up- upcoming months, and, and it's incredible. And then just recently, his wife went and played volleyball, and on her way home from volleyball... She, she started to have, her chest was tight, she was, she was having trouble breathing, so she drives herself to the hospital, shows up at the hospital, find out she's having some sort of a heart attack at mid-30s, having some sort of heart attack. She, uh, they almost had to uh, shock her with the paddles. The ambulance uh, company owner, whom he knows, said to him, People that have this don't make it. We rush there when we know that that's what's going on. And nine times out of 10, we do not make it in time. She's walking around with a defibrillator in her, uh, underneath her skin right here. And it has shocked her heart uh, seven to eight times in the last two months just to keep her alive. She is on death's door on a daily basis. The guy is a pastor He is sharing Christ with people and very successful at what he's doing. But he endures such a massive, massive amount of suffering. He he endures such massive amounts of suffering. And here's what we don't get. Is that with that trial comes a temptation to say, God, you are not good to me. It's It's an attempt to accuse God and to say, you're not good to me. Instead of loving him. And one shows that I never really did love him. And the other one shows that I'm going to remain steadfast under the trial. The people that I have seen grow the most are the people who have endured incredible trial. The people with the greatest character are the people who have endured massive trials. And yet remained steadfast underneath that trial. But here's what we often to, often do Verse 13 let no one say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil And he himself tempts no one as soon as a trial comes and as soon as difficulty comes We often want to say this. Hey God. Why would you put this trial in my life? If you didn't want me to do this if you want me to follow you God then why did you allow Insert your tragedy. The loss of a child, it's huge. It's huge. Through miscarriage, through some sort of death. The loss of a child, it's massive. God, why would you allow this in my life? If you want me with you, why would you do this? What do you want me to do, God? But God is saying this through James, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why is this? God allows trials in our lives, but he doesn't cause the temptation that comes as a result. The temptation in our life comes as a result of a sinful nature. It comes as a result of that inner spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but it comes as a result of our heart. It comes as a result of our heart that's saying this, my heart isn't leading me towards God. But here's the problem, the process of becoming a Christian is saying no to that aspect of our life, to saying no to that that aspect of my spirit, of my soul, whatever you want to call it, the sinful man in me that wants to essentially put God on trial. You know, in reality, God is the great judge. C.S. Lewis has a great essay and he talks about how God is in the dock. And instead of us being in the dock, the dock is an English word for like the witness stand. And instead of uh, us being in the witness stand and essentially being questioned by God, we put ourselves as the judge and we say, hey God, why did you allow this in my life? I, I become the judge. I become determinate over my life. God, why did you allow my marriage to be the way that it is? You shouldn't allow this. I become the judge. God, why would you bring all of these finances to me if you didn't want me to spend them on my own pleasures? God, why would you allow such great success if you wanted me to be with you? That's a way that we say, God, you're tempting me, it's your fault. It's your responsibility. You should know better, God. And so we put God on trial. We say, you're the one who's to blame for this. You're the one who's to blame for the issues in my life. How often does that happen? God, why would you give me this desire if you didn't want me to fulfill it? At the very root of it. Why would you give me this desire if you didn't want me to fulfill it? And guys, the answer to that question is this, the heart is deceitful above all else. The heart is deceitful above all else. And you are following your own direction. You are listening to your heart. Your heart is the one that's leading you. Your heart is the one that's speaking to you and you're taking wisdom from that rather than getting the wisdom from God. And so the answer is, all of this is to say that I can't put God on trial because God is the great judge. Here's another way that we could put God on trial: we could say, "You know what? If there is a God, then he's then he's this way. Then he's this way." I was talking to a friend recently who's a lawyer, and he said, uh, and he's a good friend. I enjoy uh, talking with him. But he but he said this. He said. Uh, uh, I believe that there's a God, but I believe that God is this way. He's kind and he's gentle and he doesn't judge me. He's going to accept me the way that I am and he's not going to judge me based on these things in my life. And I said back to him, what judge do you know that does this? What judge have you ever stood in front of that has allowed you to dictate what the law is? The judge is there to assert the law. The judge is there to say, this is what the law is. I am the standard. I am the standard, and I will tell you what the standard is. You will not tell me what the standard is. But so often, we get this all mixed up. We can be like Miley Cyrus and say, you know, God's going to be the one who judges us, yet at the same time say, but I've made my own standard, and God will accept my standard. And that's not the way that it works. That's putting us in charge. That's putting us in control. And so he goes on to say... In verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, what that verse is saying right there is this. It's sexual language. Lured. It's dragged away. It's seduced. It's We're being seduced by our desires. Think about what our world says. Follow your heart. You can do what you want. You can love who you want. You can kiss who you want. You can go wherever you want. You can do lines in the bathroom if you want. You can shake it however you want. But in reality, what what this is saying is that you can follow your heart all you want, but what's happening is this, is that you are being led by something else. You're being led into something that is dragging you away. It's seducing you. You're a pawn in the midst of this. It's dragging you away into sin. And you're taking it hook, line, and sinker. And you're saying, I'm going to receive this as truth. I'm going to say that my desires are right. I'm going to say that this is what I want. There are innumerable examples in our world of this. I fell out of love with my wife. I don't want to be with her anymore. You are being dragged away. You are being lured. You're being seduced and enticed. I don't want to be, uh, I, I, I really don't want to be a, a person of character in my job because then I'll lose my job or I won't sell as much if I have character in my job. job. You are being dragged away and enticed. You're being seduced. You're being told something that's not true, and you are taking it in as though it is true. Your heart is misleading you. It's not leading you towards godliness. It's leading you towards the resume virtues of this world. But in your heart of hearts, you're going to sit on your deathbed, and you're going to wish that those things were not true of you. You're going to wish. You're going to wish that your eulogy, the sermon that's taught, at your funeral would say something about you that goes along the lines of, he was a good guy, she was a great girl. But in reality, you're believing something else. You're being drugged away and enticed by this seduction of desire. And what is this desire? Because here's the thing, God gives us desires. And they're good desires. There's desires for sex. God has made a way for us to have sex. It's within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And only through that. We have good desires to support ourselves and to be industrious. These are things that come from the image of God. God has created us in his image. He's called us uh, to be working in our world, to be subduing things. To be organizing things in the way that he organized our world. These are good things. But listen, God gives us a desire, but sometimes they become more than a desire. In reality, that's what this word desire means. The original word isn't just desire. It would be better if that translation said an over-desire or a great desire or an extreme desire. It's not just wanting what God wants for you. Eulogy virtues. It's over-wanting those things. It's over-wanting to be working. It's it's wanting to, to work at the expense of your family. It's wanting to spend so much time at your work that you neglect time with your wife and spend time with her, dating her, listening to her. It's wanting a larger house so much that both of you are working and you're working tons of hours And what's happening as a result, your kids get less time with you. And I'm not saying that women should not work. I'm just saying that when you sacrifice your family on the altar of having a larger house or having a nicer car or or living uh, above a different standard, what takes place is this, is that you're taking a good desire to be industrious or to have nice things to organize your life and you're making it an over-desire. It's not just wanting something a little bit. It's really wanting something. It's over-wanting something. The word in, this, in, uh, in the Greek is epithymius. It's, it's an epi desire. It's an epic desire. It's something that's overtaking your life. And it becomes out of control for you. This is where workaholism comes from. It's where sex addicts come from. It's where relationship Addicts come from It's where all of us come from Because in our heart of hearts we're always led towards something else We're always led towards something else. We're, We're led to worship and serve the things that are giving us meaning in life And we find less and less meaning in the God who loves us and created us What happens as a result is a life that's not well lived See, the gospel isn't just for the future so that you can be saved from heaven. The gospel is to save you right here and right now. As, as uh, elders, one of the things that we talk about a lot is we talk about the families that are being torn apart. And oftentimes, they're being torn apart by a man. And that man isn't loving well in his home. He's not loving his wife well. He's not loving his kids well. He may or may not have character in his work. But he's just doing whatever he wants. And what's happened in his life is that it's tearing apart his his marriage. And I spend most of my time speaking to people. If you're in here, like I had this conversation with you, you're talking about me. I have nobody in my mind right now, so I've... No idea. Uh, I'm not even thinking of anything right now. But I'm just telling you this, that I, I, I tirelessly try to tell men so many times, you do not understand that as the head of the home, you're misleading everybody. The way that the father goes is the way that the family goes oftentimes. And sometimes in God's grace, he saves a family through the mom But so many times, the husband has such a key role that the kids will follow the husband. So many times, the husband's unwillingness to do what he's called to do will lead the family down a wrong path. And then they sit and wonder and say, why are my kids not X? Why are they not walking with Jesus? Well, you weren't walking with Jesus probably. That's not always the case. Sometimes kids just go off. But many times, why are my kids not walking with Jesus? Is because you are walking with Jesus sometimes. If you want your kids to walk, you have way better opportunities to see them walk if you're walking with Jesus. If you want to have a great home life, if you want to have great sex, if you want to have peace in your home, it begins with you, men, so many times. But here's what gets in the way. An epic desire. An epic desire to have more outside of what God has given you. It's a desire that says, I've got to have this. Everything else comes last. My work is the first thing. Or sex is the first thing. And it's an over-desire, and it's killing you. And at the end of the day, you lie on your deathbed, and you will wish that you had been about something else. You'll wish that you had been about something else. And so what James says here is this, is that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. You cannot blame God. You cannot put God on trial. It is your own fault. And too many times all of us, not just men, but all of us, and especially men, we do not take responsibility for our own sin. We say, why would God have put this in front of me if he didn't want me to get into it? I had the opportunity and the job. I got more work. Why would, God give, why would God put this relationship in front of me if he didn't want me to have it? It's better than the one that I have at home with my wife. Why would God put this person in my life if he didn't want me to love them in this way? It's an over-desire. It's wanting a good thing at the cost of all other things. Then he says, verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's the fatal attraction. It's it's essentially this. It's spiritual death that comes as a result of this relationship. It's in sexual terms. It's talking about the way that a baby is made. If you don't know about this yet, I'm sorry, you're going to hear right now but there's, there's, there's this desire. I'm not even going to go any further with this. I, I was going to give an example, but that would be very inappropriate. There's desire. There's the, the desire to be with your, your spouse, right? That desire escalates, and it, and, and it conceives something. It, can, it conceives a child and then that thing begins to grow, and that thing begins to grow, and then pretty soon it gives birth. It gives birth to sin. Here's the problem. Sin never stays in one place. You may think that it's, that it's fine. It's just this little thing. You may think that it's, just, it's just, just a tiny issue. You may think that it's just a small indiscretion. You may think that I, I'm just going to do this for a short time. Just to get by for now, you may be thinking all of these things, but the truth is, what's taking place in you is that sin has been conceived and it's working its way out. And here's the truth about this sin never just pops up out of nowhere. I don't know what happened. I just one day decided to have an affair and that was it. It doesn't happen that way, it started way back with whatever it was discontentment in your marriage. Lust. It started way back. It started with a desire to be respected more than your wife does you. It started with a desire to be loved more than your husband does you. It started with a desire and it started with an over desire to the point where you said, I want this more than anything. This is the biggest thing in my life and I want it more than anything. This is what's taking place in our lives. It's an epic desire that conceives and it begins to grow and what ends up happening is that we end up having this child which is sin. And you begin producing sin in your life and you begin producing sin in your life and you begin producing sin in your life. And here's the caution. You've given in to temptation You've given into the trial and as a result what you've proven is this and what I've proven is this in these situations. It's a lack of character, a true realization that I'm not really looking to God as as my Savior but I have another Savior. I have another Savior and it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. And so what's taking place is that we're walking further and further away from him. But here's, here's the question. How do we come to a point where we say, you know, I, 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 I want to put these things away. I want to stop. I want to stop being enticed and lured into these things. Now, David Brooks says this. He says, your willpower is not strong enough to successfully police your desires. If you really did have that kind of power, The New Year's resolutions would work. Diets would work. The bookstores wouldn't be full of self-help books. You'd need just one, and that would do the trick. You'd follow its advice, solve the problems of living, and the rest of the genre would become obsolete. But that's not the way that it works, is it? Just the sheer existence of numerous types of diets, the sheer existence of numerous self-help books. I can't even say that. I don't know what's wrong with me right now. The existence of those things, your New Year's resolutions, it shows us something, that my willpower is not enough. See, James is telling us something that's like, man, in my natural self, like, I can't seem to do this. I can't seem to get over this. I can't seem to get past this because I always have this desire and I keep going after it and I keep going after it and I keep going after it. And so what? why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep answering this, this call? Why do I keep going after this more and more? It's because my willpower isn't strong enough. But what Thomas Chalmers says is this. He says, You need the expulsive power of a new affection. You need a power in your life that can enable you to say no. See, you can't just say, I'm not gonna gonna have this sin in my life anymore. It has to be fully replaced with a great love, with the correct Savior. It has to be fully replaced. It has to expel this, and there has to be something new. And what is that something new? Well, if you've been here long enough, you gotta know this. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. How, how is it Jesus? How does Jesus become this new great love in our life? Romans 8:1. I think I even talked out of this last week, but I, I can't seem to get onto any other passage other than this one. We talked about this last week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What happens is this, is that when you truly begin to think of God and you say, I can't put God on trial, God is putting me on trial. God is the one who gets to tell me what's up. And when I stop saying, I can do what I want, I can kiss who I want, I can go where I want, I can do lines in the bathroom, I can, I can do anything. When I stop saying that and I say, no, there really is a judge. God is my judge. And if he were to look at my life and he were to look at the permissiveness and the way that I live, there would be a new scenario going on. So the person who realizes this and says, I'm not gonna buy into what the world has to say. Christians, you need to hear this. Like you and I are constantly listening to our world saying, okay, I'll just take it. I'll just take it. That, they're right. I should just follow my heart wherever it's leading me. And instead of listening, listening to that, we have to say this. No, God is my judge. He is the righteous judge. And so as a result, he's the one who gets to judge me. But then the gospel is this, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing. Like if you come to Jesus and you receive him as Savior, what you're saying is this. I no longer want to see sex as my greatest desire. What you're saying is this my greatest desire has to be Jesus and I want him to be that. And what's taking place is this is that Jesus goes before God and says I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this. If you can imagine somebody who you're really close to being crucified on a cross it happens in the Middle East right now. Christians being brutalized, being hung on crosses, heads cut off. It happens today. Imagine what it would be like to see a loved one on the cross. Imagine what what would take place in your mind and in your heart, the horror that would take place. If, If you have even read any of those stories, you know what I'm talking about. I almost walk away from them saying, I wish I hadn't read that. I wish I hadn't heard that story because it is horrific. But then you have to think about this. But Jesus did go to a cross and he really was brutalized in that way. And what happened as a result is that therefore there's no condemnation. So all of my indiscretions, all of my desires that have led me towards these things are now null and void. And now I stand clean before God. And look at why. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Do you know what you're under? When you say my willpower doesn't work. My diets don't work. My New Year's resolutions don't work. Those books don't work. Do you know what you're under? This law of sin and death. I always want to overeat. I always have to engage in the things that I, that I want. And I know that I shouldn't be doing this, but I keep doing it. What this is saying, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You know what that just said there? Your willpower isn't going to work. Just knowing the laws of God isn't going to work. It's good to know them so that you know how you square up with God and say, I really deserve condemnation. I really deserve that. But because of His great love for me, God who's rich in mercy made me alive in Christ. There's no condemnation. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, not according to the heart, but according to the spirit. So what does this look like? If you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, this process happens. There's an over-desire. You give in to that desire and it conceives. And it begins to birth. And it begins to take place. But you know what? You can stop it at desire. You can stop it at desire by saying this. I'm going to say no to the flesh. Why? Because Jesus says I can. Why? Because, because I, I can say no to that. I no longer have to follow my heart. I no longer have to be somebody who's, who's engaged in that. I no longer have to be going after this. I no longer have to do that because Jesus is my greater affection. I see him on the cross for me, and I know that he's gone there for me, and I know that he took the pain, and he took the punishment, and he poured out his blood, and so therefore, I don't have to go after that other relationship. I don't have to go after this job. I don't have to overwork. I don't have to leave God when I'm all of a sudden successful, but I can say no to temptation, and I can say yes to Jesus, because he's enabled me to do so. By having a greater love in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for us this morning as we come to your table. And Lord, there's many of us who've believed that we need to follow our own desires and truly the walk of a Christian is somebody who's continually becoming aware of those areas in their life that they need to submit to you. And Lord, I pray that they would not deceive themselves and somehow begin following their own desires and somehow say that it's you that's put those desires in their heart. Lord, that is not what you have for us. And so, Lord, we, we, we want to engage with you. We want to be godly people we want to be men and women of character in all areas of life. And so, Lord, I pray that we truly engage with this life that you've called us to, and that we'd be people who are deeply committed to following you, to, to making you our Savior in every area of life. Lord, for those that have never given their life to you, Lord, today is the day. Lord, I pray that they would submit themselves to you and say, you are the judge, you are the great God and Savior, and I cannot save myself, I cannot do it on my own, I cannot just be more moral, I need a new affection. Lord, I pray that they would make you their new affection. It's in your name we pray, amen.